time. Okay, it is time for more of What Did You Expect from Paul David Tripp, read to you by me. Okay, here we go. Still in chapter, I don't know what this one is. It's called On Your Knees. The power and protection of marital prayer. In our marriage, prayer pushes us in all the right directions. It reminds us of the kinds of things we have said are so are so important to a marriage of unity, understanding, and love. Daily prayer reinforces all the commitments we are tempted to forsake, but that are vital to maintain. Prayer opens our eyes and our hearts. Prayer is a necessary ingredient of a healthy marriage. On our knees is the best posture for our marriage. Using the Lord's Prayer as a model, here are the some here are some things that prayer does in you and it will do through you in the heart of your spouse. Our Father in heaven. Matthew six nine. Prayer reminds you that in your marriage you are never alone to the resources of your own strength and wisdom. Brian and Martina not only lost sight of one another and the commitments they had made to their marriage daily, active love, but they forgot their Lord as well. Yes, they continued to go to church, and they wouldn't have thought of forsaking their faith, but in the hallways, bedrooms, and family rooms of everyday life, they had begun to feel that it was all up to them, all on their shoulders. Part of the slow devolution of their marriage was a view of the responsibilities, opportunities, struggles, and blessings of marriage that did not include God. Here is why this is so devastating to any marriage. When you forget God's presence, promises, and provisions, either you tend to get overwhelmed and give up, or you try to do God's job. Neither is a workable option. Perhaps the most powerful way in which daily prayer for your marriage not only has the power to transform your marriage, but to transform you as well is this. Prayer reminds us that you are never alone. Prayer reminds you that you are never left to your own righteousness, wisdom, and strength. Prayer reminds you that each location or situation where your marriage exists is not only inhabited by God, but even more encouragingly, that each is ruled by Him. The one who controls the situations in which your marriage lives is not only a God who is God of awesome power, but is the definition of everything wise, true, faithful, gracious, loving, forgiving, good, and kind. But there is even more than that to the Lord's prayer confronts you with. It is what is that this God who is powerful and near is your Father by grace. If you are God's child, there is never a moment when you are outside the circle of his Father in care. Like a father, he loves you and is committed to faithfully provide, providing what is best for you. <laughs> Excuse me. When you are facing those disappointing moments of marital struggle, when you are not sure what to think, let alone what to do, prayer can rescue you from hopelessness and alienation. Prayer encourages you to say, I am not sure how we got here, and I'm not sure what we are going to be called. We are being called to do, but there is one thing I am sure of: I am never ever alone because I have a Father in heaven who is always with me. Acknowledging God will protect you from yourself. It will protect you from discouragement and fear and passivity that allows that always follows. It will protect you from the pride of self-reliance and self-sovereignty. If you are ever to have a marriage of unity, understanding, and love, you must begin with this humble admission. You have no ability whatsoever to produce the most important things that make a wonderful marriage. The changes of thought, desire, word, and action that recreate, rebuild, mature, and protect your marriage are always gifts of God's grace. As you choose to do these do things God's way, He progressively rescues you from your own self-interest and forms you into a person who really does find joy in loving another. It is only a God of love who will ever be able to change a fundamentally self-oriented, impatient, demanding human being into a person who not only desires to love, but actually does it. There is a word for this in the Bible, grace. 
Prayer reminds you that you have been graced with a Father's love, and that love will not let you go until it has changed you in every way that is needed. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 9-10. Prayer reminds you that God's purpose for your marriage is always bigger than your marriage. You will never understand your marriage or be content in it until you understand that your marriage is part of something bigger that is meant to define and shape your marriage and how you respond to it. Remember, one of the major themes of this book, marriage breaks down because people have no bigger vision for their lives than the establishment of their own little kingdoms. When there is no larger kingdom to unify a husband and wife, their marriage sadly becomes a war between the kingdom purposes of the wife and the kingdom purposes of the husband. Whether they know it or not, each will be working in the mundane moments of life to realize their dream for their life. Brian and Martina lost sight of the world bigger than their marriage and the kingdom bigger than their individual kingdoms of one. Martina's kingdom dream had to do with things she had always wanted to experience as a mom and the dreams she had always held for her children. All she wanted was for Brian to participate in the delivery of her kingdom dreams, as, and, as, and if he did, she would feel loved and happy. Increasingly, Brian's kingdom dream was located outside their home. More and more, he was taken by the dream of potential success and power that was available at work. Brian wanted Martina to do everything she could to support his career dreams, no matter what it cost on the family front. The problem was that Martina and Brian's kingdoms were in conflict. Martina's dream for her children demanded that Brian not spend so much time and energy at work, and Brian's career dreams demanded that Martina forsake her plans for him and the family. Prayer reminds you that real life is found only ever when you forsake your little kingdom of one for the bigger and better call of the kingdom of God. Prayer reminds you that God gives you his grace, not so much for the purpose of making your kingdom work, but to welcome you to a better kingdom. Every time you pray, you are acknowledging God's rule over you and your life. Prayer is an act of submitting your purposes to God. Prayer is also about confessing the self-focus and self-sovereignty of sin. Prayer is a willing offering of your life and all it contains to the loving and wise authority of God. Prayer is an active part of what it means to live for a bigger kingdom than your own. Real unity begins with a husband and wife when a wife, husband and wife quit trying to be sovereign over their own lives. Real unity begins when a husband and wife quit trying to set their agenda for their marriage and begin in practical everyday ways to pursue God's agenda together. Real marital unity begins when a husband and wife quit being kings and begin to willingly and joyfully submit to the plans, purposes, and call of the same king. The more each one individually loves and serves the king of kings, the more they will be drawn together, sharing one dream and its practical implications for their everyday life together. Prayer reminds you of a king greater than you and a kingdom better than your own. Give us this day our daily bread. Matthew 6, 11. Prayer requires you to see yourself as needy. The prayer for something as normal as bread for the day makes no sense unless it pictures something true about you. We are needy and dependent. We were never hardwired for an independent, self-sufficient existence. Prayer makes no sense at all unless it really is true that you are dependent upon God for the basic necessities of life. Prayer always requires you to acknowledge personal inability, weakness, and need. Daily prayer acknowledges daily need. Daily prayer acknowledges God's call for you to be content with what he gives you today and to trust tomorrow with his hands. And if you are dependent on God for something as basic as bread, then there is a whole catalog of things necessary for your life that are un- that you are unable and in of yourself unable to provide. 
I cannot and do not control all the things that need to be controlled. In order to guarantee that I will have a job to support my family, I do not rule all the circumstances that must be in place to ensure that my family has got an adequate home to live in. I do not control all the things that will result in my family being healthy and safe. I do not determine all the things that must be in place for my children to have a good school to attend. I do not exercise authority over the things that will ensure we have a solid church to attend. There are many important needs in my life that I do not have the power to independently meet. But there is more. If your marriage is to be a place where real unity, understanding, and love shape the character of every day, then there are things that you and your husband or wife need to be and to do. You cannot become these things to do or do these things by yourself. You do not have the ability to turn yourself into a person who is loving, kind, patient, thankful, gentle, forgiving, faithful, and self-controlling. And you surely have no power whatsoever to ensure that your spouse will be that kind of person. These essential character qualities of a good marriage are only ever the fruit of the transforming work of the Spirit of God in your heart. They only come as He progressively delivers you from you and forms you into the likeness of Jesus. Prayer yanks you out of the delusions of self-sufficiency and reminds you how deeply needy you really are. Prayer reminds you that you will never be able to do, be what you need to be and do what you are called to do without divine rescue and restoration. Prayer humbles you, and as it does, it makes you more patient and more understanding of your spouse. No one is more patient with the weakness of needs of another than the person who has admitted that he is also deeply needy. Somewhere in the early days of good commitment, wise choices and loving responses, Brian and Martina quit seeing themselves as needy, and the result was devastating to their marriage. At some point, they felt that they had figured it out. More and more, it seemed to them that they had arrived. They didn't know it, but they were turning gifts of God's grace into an occasion for personal and marital pride. There were times when they would wonder, wander together, wonder together why certain couples they knew just didn't seem to be able to get their acts together. But this pride in their wisdom, ability, and strength was subtle and deceptive. It almost always is. No, they never announced in some moment of theological change, we don't need God anymore. And they didn't quit praying before a meal and at the end of the day, but their prayers were more spiritual routine than an indicator of what they really believed about themselves and God. They never quit participating in the programs and ministries of their church, but there was a clear separation between the Sunday celebration of God's grace and the self-sufficiency of the rest of the week. In fact, in a real way, Brian and Martina quit praying because they quit seeking themselves, seeing themselves as needy. Sure, they would mumble well-rehearsed religious phrases with heads bowed and eyes closed, but these prayers were no more true prayers than the prayer of the Pharisees in the Temple of Christ's illustration in Luke 18. Their prayers were devoid of a deep sense of personal need, and because they were, they were also devoid of heartfelt appreciation and celebration. I wish I could say that I have never been in this position, but I have. Much of the trouble that we experienced in the early years of our marriage was due to my pride and my impatience with Luella, who was not as righteous and as mature as I was. My prayers were more of an act of external religiosity than they were an honest expression of the cries of a needy heart. <laughs> Real prayer transforms you as it requires you to acknowledge how fundamentally needy you really are. <clears throat> forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Matthew 6:12. Prayer reminds you of God's daily call to give the same grace to your spouse as God has given to you. Prayer requires you to love others as you have been loved. 
Prayer makes no sense if it is not rooted in recognition that God has placed his love on you, even though you could never have earned, achieved, or deserved it. Prayer makes sense only when it is rooted in the reality that you have been gifted every day with patient forgiveness and empowering grace. Prayer humbles you as it forces you to acknowledge that the most valuable thing in your existence, the love of God, is a thing that you have no capacity whatsoever to earn. And as prayer calls you to celebrate undeserved love, it requires you to commit yourself to love others in the same way. There is a direct connection between self-righteousness and the inability and unwillingness to love others. It is a contradiction to seek God's help, yet be unwilling to help your husband or wife. It is a contradiction to celebrate God's love, yet refuse to love your spouse. It is a contradiction to be deeply aware of your moment-by-moment need of grace, yet unwilling to give grace to the person who you live with and say that you love. It is a contradiction to know that your only hope in life is God's forgiveness, yet refuse to forgive your husband or your wife. It is a contradiction to know that God's will, that God will only listen to your request because he is patient and kind, and then turn and respond to your spouse in irritation and and impatience. It makes no sense to participate in it and act that, uh, hold on. It makes no sense to participate in an act that by its very nature recognizes that you have been blessed by divine love and grace, yet to have no practical commitment to love and grace in your marriage. It makes no sense to celebrate God's forgiveness and then refuse to forgive your spouse in those moments when forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration are so obviously and practically needed. As prayer calls you to celebrate virtual forgiveness, Vertical forgiveness, it requires you to offer horizontal forgiveness as well. Prayer reminds you of God's call to love. It reminds you that you have been designed to live a lifestyle of willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. Prayer reminds you that the successful living is all about loving God above all else and loving your neighbor as yourself. Prayer reminds you that your marriage is always about the daily dynamics of a sinner living with a sinner. And because it is, there is no more important commitment in all marriage than a commitment to forgive. Prayer reminds you that in your marriage there's never a day when you aren't called to give one another grace that has not been deserved or earned. Here is the thing that happened to Martina and Brian. It happened to to many of us as well. Pay attention to the cycle that I'm about to describe. As Martina and Brian lost sight of their daily need to forgiveness, they quit being so willing to forgive one another. As they quit forgiving one another and putting away their offenses, they began to keep a record of, of the other's wrongs. As they kept a daily record of wrongs, they were increasingly aware of how much their life was affected by the weakness or failure of the other. As they carried this awareness with them, they became increasingly irritated, impatient, and intolerant with one another. So since they were not fighters, they dealt with their disappointment with another way by protecting themselves from one another with distance and business. A mutual commitment to give grace daily is the only hope for a marriage of a sinner to a sinner, which is the only kind of marriage there is. Prayer reminds us of God's call to love and forgive, and reminds us that this call is most needed when it is most undeserved. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 6.13 Prayer reminds you that your biggest marital struggles exist inside, not outside of you. Real prayer always leaves you humble because real prayer requires you to admit who you really are. We would all like to think we are fundamentally good people whose biggest struggles in life exist outside, not inside of us. But prayer confronts us with a humbling reality. We are only hooked by the evil outside of us because of the evil inside of us. Prayer requires us to face the fact that no matter what we suffer in our marriage, the deepest, most abiding dilemma of our life exists inside, not outside of us. Prayer requires us to face the dark and 
devastating reality of our sin and how it distorts what we think, desire, say, and do. Prayer requires us to acknowledge that we need rescue and protection because we carry around something inside ourselves that tempts us away from what is right toward what is wrong. Prayer humbles us as it welcomes us to admit that we carry around something inside that is self-focused and antisocial and therefore destructive to our relationships. Prayer requires us to confess that the biggest problem in our marriage, the one thing we cannot escape by changes of situation or location, is ourselves. It is our sin that seduces, deceives, and entraps us again and again. It is our sin that causes us to want things we should not want, to think things we should not think, to say things we should not say, and do things we should not do. Prayer calls us to quit blaming our husband or wife for our, our words and actions. Prayer welcomes us to accept responsibility for our behavior, and as we do, to receive forgiveness and help. Prayer destroys the finger-pointing, it's-your-fault blame game that paralyzes many marriages. When the husband is deeply persuaded that the only hope for the, the marriage is to get that the hope of the marriage is to get the wife fixed, and the wife is deeply persuaded that the future of the marriage is to get the husband fixed, you can be sure that the marriage will not change. It is only when both confess that it is the sin inside them that leads them to do what is wrong in their marriage, not the failure of the other, that each hungers for growth and change and then reaches out for God's help. The more Brian and Martina pointed to one another as a cause of their attitudes and actions, the more their marriage got stuck and change seemed remote and impossible. Change in a marriage always begins with looking within, and that is exactly where prayer calls us to look. The celebration of a Savior, which lies at the heart of prayer, makes sense only when we acknowledge that we cannot escape from the sin inside of us. When we acknowledge our sin, we quit blaming our spouse and begin getting serious about getting help. In marriage, prayer reminds you again and again that your biggest, most abiding problem is you. For yours is the kingdom, for yours is the kingdom and the power of the glory forever and ever. Amen. Prayer reminds you that the key to marriage of unity, understanding, and love is rooted in an allegiance to God's kingdom and not your own. True, heartfelt prayer ends as it begins, with recognition of God's kingship and His glory. Prayer reminds you that life is not about you. Prayer reminds you that you, at the center of your universe, is a place reserved for God and God alone. Prayer reminds you that real peace, satisfaction, and contentment come when you live for a greater glory than your own. Prayer reminds you that you... That the hope of marriage is not found in your, your husband or your wife, the greater glory than your own. Prayer reminds you that the hope of marriage is not found in a husband and wife conspiring to build your own kingdom, but in submitting others to uh, submitting together to the wisdom and rule of a better kingdom. Prayer calls you away from the kingdom of self, which is so destructive to everything a marriage is intended to be, and welcomes you to the kingdom of God, where God of love rules in rules in love. Still in the battle, still recognizing need. No matter how long you've been married, no matter how much you have learned, grown and changed, grown and changed, you must stay in the battle. That war, that war that rages in your heart between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God, and you must continue to admit your need. Every day there is evidence that sin still lives inside you. And as long as it does, you must not let down your guard. You must not allow yourself to think that you have arrived, and you must not permit yourself to coast. The war will someday end, and the fight will someday be over, because sin will someday be finally defeated. But today... The sin still lives within you, and the battle must still be fought. But you didn't fight alone. You don't fight alone. As you commit to watch and pray, God graces you with his forgiveness, protection, wisdom, and strength. He loves you with everlasting love. He never grows tired of you and weary of your, with your struggles. He never throws your failures in your face or uses your sin against you. He shed the blood of his son so that in your struggles, you would have the forgiveness and power you need. 
When you pray for your marriage, you remind yourself that you are not alone. When you pray, you remind yourself that grace has invaded your marriage. And because it has, there is hope. There really is. And that is the end of that chapter. And Nathan got here and just got out of Science Olympia, so he got to listen to the last page of that. Praise God for that. Say hi. Hello. Hello, he said. Okay, bye. Here we go. I'm back again, and this is The Prince Warriors and the Unseen Invasion by Priscilla Shire, read, old, read by dear old daddy-o. Chapter 5. A new friend. Brianna unlocked her phone and opened the app called Unseen. Still nothing. No message, no instruction. Every day there had been a message on her screen, but today... It was just the weird symbols and patterns and didn't make any sense again. She pushed the lock button on her phone and turned her attention to the boys' basketball game, which was taking place in the gym due to the bad weather. Levi and Xavier were both playing, as was Landon. That was something to see. Landon, the big bully whom she and Levi had confronted only a month ago, was now playing ball with Levi and other kids. And Landon was pretty good, too. Wonders never cease. Brianna knew Levi didn't really like shooting hoops very much. He wouldn't be playing basketball at all if it hadn't been raining. He'd be out at the skateboard park with his buddies. Xavier made a basket, and a group of girls in the stands cheered. Xavier lived and breathed basketball. He was tall and sinewy with long legs that seemed to be able to cover the whole court in a few strides. Levi was shorter and stockier, not as quick in basketball. But on the skateboard, he could dip and turn like an acrobat. Levi recovered the ball and started dribbling down the court. Mr. J.A.R.'s, J.A.R., Levi's dad, who volunteered most days at the rec center, trotted up and down the court with his whistle in his mouth, blowing it occasionally. Mr. J.A.R., short for James Arthur, loved basketball, almost as much as Xavier did. Evan did, too. Where was Evan today? She looked around but didn't see him. Is someone sitting here? As a soft, tentative voice. Brianna looked up at a girl, at the girl with glossy red hair and soft freckles. She was pointing to the space next to Brianna on the bench. Uh, guess not, Brianna mumbled, picking up her phone as if she had gotten an important text. Um, I'm Ivy, said the girl. Yeah, I know. Ivy sat down, turning her eyes up to the game. Brianna noticed how Ivy's hair fell in tumbling waves down her back, how her jeans looked new, and she had on one of those, those hip New sling backpacks with a bright pattern, just like the cool 7th grade girls seem to have. Brianna quickly shoved her own backpack under her seat. She'd had it since elementary school, and it had been her sister's before that. Brianna had three older sisters, so she never got anything new. Brianna remembered the day that Ivy had joined her and Levi in standing up to Landon when he was bullying Manuel. Since then, they had spoken a few times. Brianna had a feeling that Ivy wanted to be friends, but Brianna wasn't sure she wanted Ivy for a friend. But Brianna wasn't sure. For one thing, Ivy's hair was a little too perfect. For another thing, Brianna was a princess warrior, and she knew Ivy would never understand what that meant. I like your headband, Ivy said, startling her. Brianna looked at her and gave a little smile. Oh, thanks. Where'd you get it? Nowhere. I I made it. Brianna wished she hadn't said that. She should She should have mentioned some expensive boutique or department store. Now Ivy would think she was a big loser. It's really pretty, Ivy murmured. Thanks, Brianna glanced at Ivy and saw her fiddling with a lock of her hair, twirling it around to one finger. Her face was all red, like she was really nervous or embarrassed about something. When Ivy looked her way, Brianna turned her attention back to her phone. Um, I was wondering, Ivy began, what? Finally, Ivy sighed. Oh, nothing.
Brianna wished the girl would just go away, or at least not talk anymore. She didn't want to answer a lot of questions about where she lived or why she lived with her grandparents instead of her real parents. Ivy probably lived in a big house and had her own room, just like most of the other girls in her class. Brianna pulled a tube of her favorite glitter lip gloss out of her hoodie pocket and slathered it on her lips. She always felt a lot prettier with sparkly lips. But then all of a sudden, she felt stupid again. Ivy didn't wear glitter lip gloss. None of the girls in sixth grade wore it. She should have grown out of it a long time ago. She tucked the tube back in her pocket, rubbing her lips together and wiping them with the back of her hand. The whistle blew and Brianna breathed out a sigh of relief. Glad to get away from this annoyingly pretty girl. She raced down the bleachers to she raced down the bleachers to greet Levi and Xavier. Good game, she said. Levi was sweating like crazy and still panting from the game. He nodded to her. Ivy walked past them both, smiling a little shyly, but not saying anything. It was all right, Levi said. Xavier knocked one, him on the shoulder. Better luck next time. Yeah, you better watch out, Levi answered. Landon walked up to Levi. They bumped fist wor- fists wordlessly while before Landon went on his way. You guys like BFFs now? Brianna asked him with a short giggle. Hey, he's okay, said Levi with a shrug. I mean, he's not bullying the little kids anymore. That's something. They walked to the main room of the rec center where kids were gathering their books and coats, preparing to go out to go home. Outside, it was getting dark. The rain started still pounding the roof and streaming down the windows. Xavier stopped to get a drink from the water fountain. Where's Evan? Brian asked him. Guess he didn't come today, Xavier said. He straightened, tossing back a lock of hair from his face. He was all mad this morning. Something about picture day. Manuel didn't come either, Levi said. Told me he had something important, some important experiment to do at home. You know Manuel, he shrugged, laughing. Mr. J.A.R. came up to the kids, beads of sweat still on his forehead from refereeing the game. Levi, you ready to go? Sure, Dad, just a sec. He reached over the table where he'd left his backpack. Mr. Arthur! Mary Stanton, the college student who worked part-time at the rec, called from the door of the office, a phone in one hand, a coffee cup in the other. She insisted on calling Levi's dad Mr. Arthur rather than Mr. J.A.R. Like the, like the kids did, I need, help, I need help in here. Just then a child ran out of the office and jostled her, causing her to drop her coffee cup. She shrieked, abandoning the phone to save her chai latte. Chai latte. Coming, Mary, Mr. J.R. said with a sigh. Mary was always in the middle of one crisis or another. You kids hang tight. Brianna, you need a ride home? That would be great, thanks. As Mr. J.R. went to deal with Mary Stanton's problem, Brianna's phone chirped. She pulled it from her hoodie pocket and looked at the screen. It's a new message, she exclaimed. It's not a message, it's just the crest, Levi said. Then his phone made a beeping noise. He pulled it out of his backpack and looked. I've got it too. The crest appeared immediately, shining red in a black field. That's weird, Brianna said. The crest doesn't usually show up unless there's trouble. All three of them stood still, not knowing what to do, half expecting to be transported to Aharatas instantly, but nothing happened. They were still at their wreck, holding their phones, kids jostling around them to get things and to go outside and meet their eyes. False alarm, maybe, said Xavier. Brianna thrust her phone back in her hoodie pocket, disappointed. Oh, well, I guess we just have to wait a little longer. Can I borrow your phone, Xavier asked Levi. Evan's got mine. I need to text my dad, make sure he picks me up on his way home. Sure, Levi handed, handed his phone to Xavier. It's so cute that you two have to share a phone, said Brianna. Actually, it's not, said Xavier. He took Levi's phone, closed out the unseen app, and began texting. Suddenly, all the lights in the building flickered and went out. What just happened? Brianna asked. All around them, kids hooted and giggled at the sudden darkness. Some used the light on their phones to find their way. Power outage, said Xavier, glancing around. Good thing we're leaving. He looked down at the phone again, but instead of his message to his dad, the crest of Aharatas was glowing on the screen. Hey, look at this, he said, coming slowly, showing the, boy, the phone to Levi. The crest came back. 
That's weird, said Levi. Just then, the image seemed to lift off the screen, hovering in the air before their eyes. Brianna took out her phone and stared at it. Mine's doing it, too. She watched as the crest rose up from her phone screen. The two hovering crest images soon began to shift toward each other, joining together in midair. They rotated slowly at first, picking up speed. Just like the last time, Brianna whispered, quick, grab it. The others will see us, Xavier said, looking around nervously. They aren't even looking, Brianna toward him. Besides, they can't see it. Only we can. Come on, together. She reached out toward the floating crest. Xavier and Levi did too. Suddenly, they felt as if they had jumped into a speeding merry-go-round, flying into motion, spinning so fast they couldn't see the room around them at all. The lights flickered back on. Mary Stanton emerged from the office just as the three kids disappeared into thin air. She dropped her Starbucks again. Chapter 6. The Infinity Space. Evan and Manuel gazed at the unending sea of whiteness around them. There was no landscape at all, just empty, colorless space. Where are we? Evan asked. This doesn't look like Aharatus. Usually there's stuff, trees and grass and stuff. It's like being inside a jar of cotton balls. Yes, very strange, Manuel answered in his scientific voice. He reached out tenderly to touch the whiteness around him. It felt very close, and yet he couldn't actually feel anything. Invisible cotton balls. He bent down to see if there was a solid surface under his feet. There wasn't. There is no earthly reason why we are still standing here, not even falling. No earthly reason, Evan said with a little chuckle. Got that right. Of course, we could be falling and not even know it if we are in an, anti- in an area of microgravity. Micro what? Like astronauts in space. They look like they're floating, but they're actually falling at the same rate. Evan knew Manuel was about to explain a bunch of stuff he didn't really want to hear about at that moment, so he interrupted. Where is everyone else? Just then there was a noise. Evan had heard, heard once before, a noise like a garbage disposal turning, trying to grind up a ham bone. And suddenly his brother Xavier was standing there too, along with Levi and Brianna. The three of them stared around dumbfounded, blinking. Hey guys, Evan said, about time you showed up. Evan, said Xavier, slowly squinting as if he didn't trust his own vision. Manuel? Where are we? Brian asked nervously. Aharatus, said Evan. I mean, probably. There's no floor, said Xavier, bending to feel under his feet as Manuel had done. What are we standing on? Gravity, said Evan. According to him. Microgravity, said Manuel. What I think happened is... How do we get out of here? asked Levi, interrupting. We need to find the water, Xavier said, knowing that any delay in finding the water could have disastrous consequences. Those were the instructions Ruach had given them the first time they came to Aratus. They had to go through the water in order to get to the cave, where they could get their armor. It was dangerous to be in Aratus without their armor. Ruach had told them that plenty of times. Yeah, said Evan, and a tad nervously. His eyes darted around, half expecting a stand grobel or a bolt of lightning to strike like they had before. But... There's no water here, Brianna said. There's, like, nothing here. Literally, said Levi. Maybe it's like the dome, Evan said. Remember the dome that Levi was trapped in? That was invisible. But it was still solid, Xavier said, and we could still see the ground. I can't see anything through this white stuff except more white stuff. Actually, we're not standing on anything, Manuel tried to explain about the microgravity thing, but everyone continued to ignore him. We really need to find the water, Evan said, more nervous. Maybe the water is invisible, said Brianna. Then how are we going to be able to get into it, Levi asked. For reasons that Evan couldn't pinpoint, the mysterious instruction he'd received the day before floated across his mind like a wavering banner. Ask, and it shall be given. Maybe we could just ask for it, Evan said. Ask, Levi said, cocking an eyebrow at him. For what? The water? 
Didn't you read the instruction from yesterday? Ask and it shall be given. Maybe that's what it was talking about, Evan answered. So let's just ask. He cupped his hands around his mouth and he yelled up into the white blankness around him. Ruach, if you can hear me, please give us the water. He expected to hear his own voice echo back to him, as it usually did in large places like this. <coughs> but it actually sounded as though his voice just evaporated into space, or like it never even left his mouth. They waited, but nothing happened. No echo. No echo, said Manuel, mirroring Evan's thoughts. That confirms my suspicions that wherever we are has no walls, no ending. It's like an infinity space. Infinity space? Cool, said Levi, nodding his head thoughtfully. Guess that means we aren't going to walk out of here. He let out a laugh like he was making a joke. No one else thought it was funny. If there's no air, how are we breathing, said Xavier. The fact that we are breathing means that there must be oxygen in the atmosphere, Manuel said. So where are we? We're not on Earth, and maybe we're not even in Aharatus. Are we, like, between the two, Brian asked? Are we, like, stuck? Yeah, maybe, like, maybe the crest portal thing ran out of gas or something, Levi said. He laughed again. I seriously doubt a portal would run out of gas, said Manuel, perfectly serious. Still, it is not a very proprietous situation for us to be at the moment. Pro what? said Evan, still disbelieving what an 11-year-old, that an 11-year-old would use words like pro whatever it was, for goodness sake. It means promising. Well, why didn't you just say that? A new sound interrupted them, a sort of high-pitched squeal, like a rusty hinged door opening. The kids stopped talking and looked up, as the sound seemed to be coming from somewhere above them. It was hard to tell, though as, as the sound in this place didn't reverberate, it died as quickly as it began. What is it? Brianna whispered, searching the empty space above them for a source of the sound. It was something, something, although they weren't sure quite what. The squeals seemed to be getting louder and closer until it, whatever it was, began to materialize before them. A transparent curtain of some sort, about five feet wide, but extending so far above and below them that no end could be seen. The surface of the curtain appeared to be moving, rippling like a thin veil of water. Water, see, Evan gloated, told you. That's the water, Brianna asked, peering at it. Weird, kind of looks like water, but not really. Manuel slowly reached out to poke at it. His finger went right through. It does feel like water, he concluded, but it's very peculiar. He walked all around the other side of the thing, scratching his head. Can you see me? Sorta, you look wavy. Ah, interesting, Manuel said, coming back around to the other side. Some sort of visible waveform, perhaps, although it must be far more dense than it appears. Manuel began mumbling to himself, sort out of sorting out various hypotheses. Evan had started walking around the strange, wavy curtain, too. When he got to the other side, he poked his finger into it as Manuel had done. Hey, look at my finger, he said, wiggling around. Where is it? You can't see it, said Evan. What about this? He stuck his foot through. Can you see my foot? Nope. Evan pulled out his foot. It was completely dry. He came around to join the others again. Cool, it must be the water. Well, I'm not so sure of that, Manuel said. It seems designed to simulate water and therefore could be some sort of trap. Might just swallow us whole. A flicker of hesitation showed on his face. I propose we study it further. I wish I had my microscope here or at least a magnifying glass. <clears throat> There's the crest. I can see it. Levi pointed to the rippling curtain where the funny-shaped end glowed very dimly. Wait, I see it too, Evan said. The others soon nodded in agreement. That must be the water. There's only one way to find out for sure, Levi suddenly declared. He took a step right into the mirror-like curtain. His leg disappeared, just like Evans, ha Evans had done. See ya! His voice was full of mischief as he stepped forward, the rest of him following and promptly disappearing together. 
Levi, Brianna gasped, but he was gone before she could even try to pull him away. Where did he go? Evan rushed around to the other side of the sheet to see Levi would reappear, but he didn't. He must be in there, he murmured. Somehow, look, Xavier said, pointing to the sheet where a pale reddish tinge spread out from the center of the crest. Red! It was the same, it was the hue that always spread across the surface of the water when someone passed through its surface. This is what made it different than ordinary water. Definitely the water, Brianna said, feeling suddenly secure that Levi was safe in the cave. See ya, she chirped to the others as she nearly jumped into the rippling water. She too disappeared. Hey, wait for me, Evan shouted and dashed through the water next. Xavier and Manuel were left. You want to go first, Xavier asked. Perhaps we should wait a bit, just to make sure. You can wait if you want, but I'm going, Xavier. Stepped into the water and disappeared with others. Wait, Manuel cried, but it was too late. Xavier was gone. Manuel remembered the last time he'd almost been left behind, when he'd been too scared to cross the bridge of Skotos. He wasn't about to let that happen again. He started counting, which was what he always did in scary situations. One, two, three. He stuck his foot in the water. Four, five. He shut his eyes and lunged forward, disappearing completely before he could say six. And that is the end of chapter six. Love you all. Bye.